I have this old cassette tape with my voice on it. It's from the fall of 1989 when I just turned 19 years old. It's strange all these years later to hear that younger version of myself talk about himself. Well, I used my checkbook for the second time and I used it, which was the first time in a store. I bought some clothes using a check, yes. Um, we're breaking new boundaries for Rolf Potts and his checkbook here. As far as school is concerned, I don't know if I've told you this, but I really don't know what I want to do with my life. And this is a real change from being a senior in high school. Uh, I don't know if I like it all that well. Not that I'm having trouble adjusting, it's just that I guess I'm back at the bottom of the ladder again. Part of what's weird about listening to my own voice from all those years ago is that while it alludes to actual things that were happening in my life at age 19, it almost feels like those things were happening to a different person. When I hear that tape, I don't really relate to the person I was at that age. I mainly just feel embarrassed for him. I originally recorded that tape from my sister Kristen, who was off at college in Oregon at the time, and a lot of what I say to her feels to me like lame attempts to make her laugh. Take, for instance, this bit of would-be absurdist comedy, which is so deeply moronic it still makes me cringe when I listen to it. And now, to equal the excitement of the last two segments of the show, Rolf will sing Mary Had a Little Lamb in a Slavic accent while the microwave is running. If this audio reveals anything about who I was in the fall of 1989, it mainly shows that I was a guy who was comfortable enough with his sister to be a complete doofus on tape. Maybe the weirdest part about hearing my own voice on that tape is that it doesn't leave me with much of an emotional sense for who I was at age 19, at least not compared to the way I feel when I hear something along the lines of this song. the hair metal band Warrant singing Cherry Pie, a song I didn't even like when it first came out. Yet for reasons I can't fully explain, listening to it gives me a stronger sense of nostalgia for the person I was at age 19 than the sound of my own voice at age 19. Maybe it's because my own voice is too real, too jarring and specific, whereas a song I heard in passing on the radio around that same time is better at evoking the random memories and bygone longings from that time in my life than a literal recording of my own thoughts at the same age. Cherry Pie was a song so cheesy and campy and brainlessly sexist that even the band's own lead singer more or less disowned it. But somehow this song, a song that has over the years come to represent the death rattle of hair metal one year before Nirvana's Nevermind ushered in the grunge era, evokes for me the frustrations and longings I felt in the fall of 1989, when I felt a little bit stuck in life and I suspected a much more satisfying existence was just out of reach in a way I couldn't quite pinpoint. I don't know, maybe this is just speculation about something I can't properly explain, but I think nostalgia always has a wonky relationship to real life as it plays out in real time. In fact, I did a little fact-checking and Warren's Cherry Pie hadn't even come out yet in the fall of 1989, it wasn't released until September of 1990, but in my memory it evokes a feeling for the fall of 1989 that hearing a tape of myself talking in the fall of 1989 doesn't. Thank you. 
Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. This episode is about life and death and love and longing, though at heart it's about that peculiar emotional sensation known as nostalgia. I've been wanting to use my old cassette recordings to make sense of nostalgia ever since I started this podcast back in 2017. Yet in the three years that have passed since then, four significant events in my life have changed the way I've made sense of my own memories. The first and most obvious of these events is the COVID-19 pandemic, which changed the way we've all come to talk about nearly everything. And whether or not you can technically call it nostalgia, it feels like we're all longing for the seeming simplicity of the very recent past that existed about a year ago. Second, I had what might be called a near-death experience a year and a half ago when I crashed a motorcycle while traveling in north-central Sri Lanka. This is something I've never written about or even talked about publicly, in part because I can't decide if I'd be exaggerating or understating just how close I came to dying on that lonely backwater highway on the other side of the world, and whether it even matters if it amounted to near-death or non-death or just another random thing that happened to me in the ongoing flow of events in my life. Whatever the case, the hypothetical notion of my own death filtered how I saw everything in the year after the wreck happened, and I feel like I should explore that here. Third, and not entirely unrelated to that, my life shifted in a major way earlier this year when I met a certain person who I'll introduce right now. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Who are you? My name is Kristen Bush, but you call me Kiki. That's my nickname from when I was a little girl. Um, you call me that in part because your sister's name is Kristen as well. And to avoid confusion. Oh, where are you from? What do you do? And what's your relationship to me? I'm from a small town in Kansas with one stoplight not far from here. And I'm an actor by trade and by training. And I've lived, Lord, I've lived in New York for eight years. I've lived in LA for two years. I've lived in, I went to school in London for three years. And then for the past five years, I've been off and on in Berlin. So I've lived in a lot of different places. And one funny thing about the fact that you're an actor is that this is our like our fifth or sixth take <laughs> of this conversation because you're not used to being yourself. Oh, I hate talking in my own voice. Like, give me a funny, silly character to play and I'll do that. But yeah, I hate talking well, as myself. But well, I'm doing this for you. <laughs> well, why are you doing this for me? What's your relationship to me? That's your question to answer. I don't know. I mean, I when I describe what we are, I typically use the pithy parlance of the day, but I, I mean, it's, it sounds so watered down for what it is. I guess we're boyfriend, girlfriend, yes. which is the parlance of the day, but um, we fell in love. That's the best way to say it. The, the pandemic hit at a time when I should have been traveling with my nephew through Italy and Switzerland. Mm -hmm. And you were here. And I was here in Kansas. And where were you? And I probably should have been in Berlin or New York, but certainly not in my parents' home about an hour away from here. And so we ended up meeting. We can talk a little bit more about those specifics later, but this is an episode about nostalgia. Mm -hmm. And so um, come back please later in the episode and we can talk about that. If you're very nice, I will. But you, um, what's number four, the fourth? Number four meaning? Well, you said something about there being three, four things oh, that changed right. yeah, yeah. your way of looking at. Four things changed my way of looking at nostalgia. And the fourth one is actually is that on the very day this episode will drop, I'm going to turn 50 years old. That's old. That's old. It <laughs> sounds old. I don't feel 50 years old, but it sounds old. And in honor of being 50, which I don't feel, and it sounds so strange, I'm going to call this episode 50 Ways of Looking at Nostalgia. 50 Whole Ways. 
Well, Where are you going to start? What's the first one? I think I pr should probably start at the motorcycle crash. What do you think? Sounds good to me. All right. I'll talk to you later. difficult part of describing my motorcycle wreck in Sri Lanka is that it left me severely concussed, which means I don't remember the wreck itself. I only remember details before and after I crashed the motorcycle. As a writer, I've been promoting low-budget independent travel for more than two decades now, and one issue I come back to again and again is fear, fear and danger, since so many people postpone their travels due to vague or imagined fears of what might happen in faraway places. I usually tell people that with enough common sense, travel need not be any more dangerous than your life is at home. Statistically, that's true, though at times my own travels have put me in danger, including the time I was drugged and robbed in Istanbul, the time I contracted cholera on the Laotian Mekong, and the two times I came down with malaria in Southeast Asia, including cerebral malaria, which could have killed me. I don't regret any of those experiences, in part because travel can be a window into a deeper and richer experience of life, and life includes dangers and accidents. Travelers do die from time to time overseas, but it tends to be from the same things that kill people back home, most notably road accidents. I'm not sure how close I came to dying when I crashed my motorcycle in Sri Lanka, but it is something I couldn't stop obsessing on and talking about in the weeks after it happened, as evidenced by a recorded conversation I had with travel writer Jonathan Yevon. Jonathan, as you might recall, travels without luggage, and he and I talked about this back in episode 56 of the podcast. But when I first turned on the digital recorder, he was responding to my mention of my own motorcycle accident in Asia by recounting the story of a travel friend of his who'd been killed after being hit by a tractor while riding his own motorcycle in South Africa. And a tractor came out and smashed it. Jesus. And, and I, every time I'm on a bike, which is probably, you know, half the year, anytime I just make that motion and look under my arm, I think about him and I Jesus. think about it. That's the one thing I don't want to think about too much is how much worse it could have been. You know, it clearly could have been better. I'm trying to think. Yeah, so actually I, I cracked. This cheekbone is sort of cracked. Like this one is nice and smooth and this one has a dent in it. Wow. And then I had a black eye, I had a shiner and stitches in my chin and then this big golf ball knot on my shin. The weird thing is, is that my pants were fine that I was wearing. That is weird. Um, I scraped off a little bit of my shoulder. Can, oh, you, yeah. can you see that? Well, it would have yeah. been so stupid to, to die that way, to die on a motorcycle. No, not stupid, I don't know. It, again, it would have been beautiful for the guy who found you in a pile of butterflies. When Jonathan mentions butterflies, he was alluding to something I told him before we were recording about how on that backcountry road in Sri Lanka, I found myself in a swarm of white butterflies. And part of the reason I wrecked is that I didn't want to kill any and I was trying to slow down and avoid hitting them. People love it when I share this detail since it makes it seem like I sacrificed myself to try and save the butterflies and maybe that's what happened. But I think people prefer stories to facts when they hear about events like this and crashing your motorcycle in an attempt to avoid killing butterflies sounds better than crashing your motorcycle at random. People also attach themselves to stories in less than generous ways, particularly on social media. And among the many reasons I'm glad I didn't die in the accident, a big one is the mean-spirited joy that people on venues like Twitter might have found when they learned that the guy who wrote a best-selling book subtitled The Art of Long-Term World Travel had been killed on a motorcycle in the middle of a long-term journey across Asia. 
The gleeful schadenfreude this kind of death might have generated in some corners of social media wouldn't have been personal, of course. It would have been about the elegant irony of the vagabonding guy meeting his end while vagabonding. I'll get back to those Sri Lankan butterflies in a second. I think they may have been Ceylon lesser albatross butterflies, which is an interesting detail to the story. But for now, I want to touch a little bit on what happened in the months after I talked to Jonathan about the accident, since the hypothetical possibility of my own death framed how I saw everything for the rest of that year and well into this one. After the wreck itself, I didn't dwell too much on the seriousness of what had just happened. I checked myself out of the little north-central Sri Lankan hospital with stitches in my chin and kept traveling, flying on to Dubai for a few days and then spending a couple weeks in the Republic of Georgia before landing stateside in New York. It wasn't until I was in New York while visiting old friends who kept pointing out that I could have easily been killed in the motorcycle wreck that I began to think more existentially about what had happened. As the weeks went on, I began to suffer various side effects of my concussion, including hyposmia, which is a partial loss of your sense of smell that I'm actually still dealing with, and recurring episodes of fairly serious depression, which fortunately have gone away. Depression filtered my way of looking at things last year, and it tended to fragment my memories in such a way that they didn't connect to each other in a rational way. I started to see my life not just in terms of what I had done and seen, but in terms of everything I would never be able to do and everything I would never quite see and every place I might never go. At times when my emotions were really low, I felt a complete absence of pride or even interest in the things I'd done in life. And often I was convinced that I would never again do anything significant or useful in the future. I didn't feel suicidal necessarily, but I felt less and less interested in the way my own life was playing out. In retrospect, it left me with a strong sense of empathy for people who are suffering from the emotional ambivalence that comes with chronic depression. In a way, I felt unstuck in time, a phrase I remembered from the novel Slaughterhouse-Five, which is one of several Kurt Vonnegut books I fell in love with when I was in high school. Being unstuck in time referred to the sensation of living through random moments from various points in the timeline of your life rather than experiencing them sequentially from day to day. For the protagonist of the book, a war veteran named Billy Pilgrim, all moments, past, present, and future, quote, always have existed and always will exist. It's just an illusion we have here on Earth that one moment follows another one and that once a moment is gone, it's gone forever, end quote. I remember going back home to Kansas after my travels were over and experiencing my own house as if I was no longer alive. I realized that my own possessions, everything I'd saved as meaningful over the years, were part of a personal dialogue with myself, a non-sequential collection of personal moments and experiences that only made sense through my ongoing interaction with them, and they would cease to have meaning to anyone once I was dead. I imagined the sheer incomprehension of whoever might be tasked with clearing my house of these possessions when I was gone, and I felt this creeping sense of what can only be called loneliness. At times, my mind would shuttle through my own past, speculating about what relationships in my past might have imbued my life with more meaning had I made different decisions, but nothing from my past made much sense. The possibility of love in the past or in the future felt as dim and hypothetical as the details of the motorcycle wreck itself, an event I literally couldn't remember even as it impacted and colored the way I'd begun to see everything. This sense of being unstuck in time, that is, this sense of detachment from my narrative sense of self, continued that summer when I traveled to Kazakhstan and after that to Paris, where I teach a writing class each summer. 
My depression tended to get worse when I drank alcohol, particularly wine, so I found myself being less social in Paris, where wine is almost always a feature at dinner, and more given to staying inside and streaming TV shows online. For some reason, I found myself binging shows like Mindhunter and Chernobyl and Stranger Things, all of which are set in a very specific time during the early mid-1980s. All those shows, Stranger Things in particular, seemed designed to trade in nostalgia for that era, especially since it employed retro synthesizer theme music and calculated Steven Spielberg and Stephen King motifs as it followed a group of preteen boys in the American Midwest in the mid-1980s. I was the exact same age at the exact same time in the 1980s as the young characters in Stranger Things, and if you take away the science fiction intrigue, it feels like the show could have been based on the journals I kept in Kansas between 1984 and 1986, a time when, just like the boys in Stranger Things, I bicycled everywhere, savored trips to the shopping mall, played Dungeons and Dragons, and pretty much watched the same movies and TV programs as the boys on the show. I realized that nostalgia can be seen as an insipid and faintly manipulative sensation, I wrote in my journal after finishing the third season of Stranger Things. But when I watched this show, I realized that nostalgia is not a voluntary condition. It's just a feeling that wells up inside of you in certain moments. Around the same time I wrote this in my journal, I was recording or editing a number of new season two Deviate episodes during my off time in Paris. And I realized that a big percentage of my new episodes about movies like Pulp Fiction or Kicking and Screaming or my own vagabonding travels by van in 1994 or trying to invade the set of Leonardo DiCaprio's The Beach in 1999 were squarely pegged to the 1990s. My post-concussive inability to smell had, in a strange but very real way, thrown off my usual instincts for navigating memory. And in my depressed state, I began to worry that my seeming fixation with the 1980s and the 1990s was somehow pathological. I do believe there is something potentially dangerous to nostalgia, or at least to a certain kind of manipulative nostalgia. In particular, that make America great again type of nostalgia that hinges on resistance to change in a fictional sense for what America was like half a century ago. But in retrospect, I don't think that's what I was feeling in the months after my motorcycle crash. In fact, I think that if anything, that depressive fixation with the 1980s and 1990s was a way of rebuilding whatever sense of self and stability the prospect of my own death had shaken apart in the weeks after my accident. I go too far into my own subjective experiences with nostalgia, I should probably talk about the more objective definitions we have for what nostalgia is. If you Google the word nostalgia, you'll get the Oxford English Dictionary definition of the word, which is, quote, a sentimental longing or wistful affection for the past, typically for a period or a place with happy personal associations, end quote. That feels like an adequate but kind of limited definition of nostalgia, in part because for me, nostalgia is way more complicated than happy associations about the past. The word nostalgia is actually Greek in origin, combining the word nostos, which means homecoming or return to the familiar, and algos, which refers to a pain or an ache or a longing. In one of the most famous scenes from the TV show Mad Men, the Don Draper character alludes to the Greek origins of nostalgia during an ad pitch for, of all things, a slide projector. Teddy told me that in Greek, nostalgia literally means the pain from an old wound. 
It's a twinge in your heart, far more powerful than memory alone. This device isn't a spaceship. It's a time machine. It goes backwards and forwards. It takes us to a place where we ache to go again. When Don Draper talks about this place where we ache to go again, he's talking about a time in life. Though the original definition for the word nostalgia when it was invented by doctors in the 17th century referred to a longing for an actual place where you once lived, it was a pathological type of homesickness that resulted in severe depression and was commonly considered to be a potentially fatal medical condition. People suffering from nostalgia were thought to see ghosts, confuse the past with the present, and hear voices of people who weren't really there. Over time, as urban industrialization in the 19th century made people's connection to places more abstract and utilitarian and uncoupled from old traditions, nostalgia became less and less about longing for one's familiar places in one's own life, and more and more about longing for one's familiar times from one's own life. While this modern connotation of the word is technically newer, it feels like this kind of nostalgia is less like something that resembles a relatively recent medical condition than a hardwired human longing that goes back thousands of years. Something you can see as far back as the 4,000-year-old Epic of Gilgamesh, when the main character recalls the adventures he had with his now-dead friend Enkidu, or in Homer's Odyssey, when Odysseus uses memories of his family and home to help himself endure hard times. This kind of nostalgia is less about medical pathology than personal mythology into how we come to make sense of who we are over time. An obvious temptation here is to over-idealize an unrealistic vision of who we were in the past as a kind of overreaction to the imperfections of the present moment. But social scientists have over the years come to discover that, as was the case with Odysseus, nostalgia can be a way of maintaining identity in the midst of loss and transition. Part of the task of coming to love the life you live in the present is maintaining an imaginative relationship to the life you lived in the past because, to quote the French novelist Marguerite Yourcenar, the past is the present as it has survived in our memories. In this way, nostalgia serves to remind us that the present moment, which is all we ever really have, is as resonant and as sacred as all of the moments that have led up to it. In a sense, and this time I'm paraphrasing William Faulkner, the past isn't fully consigned to the past since each moment of the present is in dialogue with the past in ways we aren't fully aware of. I'm reminded of this when I listen to another old cassette tape from my past, this one recorded in 1983 when Mr. Cheatham, one of my elementary school teachers, decided that the sixth graders in his class were going to record their voices on cassette tape as a message to our future selves, bury the cassette in the ground as a time capsule and dig it up six years later when we were about to graduate from high school. Here's me introducing myself on that tape. Well... I'm Ralph Potts, and I'm going to go to Hadley, but I'm not really looking forward to that. I'm more looking forward to summer. Probably go to the Rockies again. Well, my sister's going to be in junior high. She's two years older than I am, and huh? I am 12, and I'm very civilized. <laughs> Considering the circumstances. 
Beyond the introductions, part of the task of making that cassette recording was to think ahead to the future and talk about what life might look like in 1989 when we dug up the time capsule. Now, to me, 1989 didn't seem all that interesting since it promised only a variation of what I was already doing, which was attending public school in Wichita, Kansas. So befuddled by the lack of compelling possibilities, my friend Eric and I lobbied the teacher to let us imagine life in a more distant and exciting part of the future, and we made up a science fiction drama entitled 1999, A Space Adventure. Mr. Cheatham gave our little space opera the green light, and with Eric narrating and me playing a real-time score on the piano, this is what our broadcast sounded like after being buried underground in a time capsule for six years. If time capsule recordings like this one have something to teach us, it may well come in the way they show us how bad we are of making sense of both the present and the future. In 1983, when Eric and I recorded 1999 A Space Adventure, a do-it-yourself cassette recording felt like a sophisticated technological endeavor, but our actual creation, a pretend radio drama recorded in real time with piano-driven sound effects, was a throwback to the pre-TV days of the 1930s and 40s. Moreover, in retrospect, the Starship Superprize was clearly an allusion to the Starship Enterprise of Star Trek TV fame. And the planet Dagobah was an obvious ripoff of Dagobah, the swampy planet where Yoda lives in The Empire Strikes Back, which at the time was the only Star Wars movie sequel to have been released. In fact, in creating a make-believe radio drama about the future, we were probably less interested in the year 1999 than we were in the day that very spring, a few weeks hence, in May of 1983, when the final installment of the Star Wars trilogy, Return of the Jedi, would hit movie screens. Indeed, for all its failings as a space-age vision of the future, 1999 A Space Adventure had inadvertently captured a glimpse into the concurrent blend of nostalgia and expectation that characterized the moment in which it was created. It conveyed in its own semi-coherent way a sense for what it felt like to be 12 years old in 1983. When the battle was over, only one of Lenox men was wounded. Lenox and his men led the attack on Indeed, if a cassette recording buried in a time capsule promises a genuine conversation between past and future, it does so because this is a kind of theatricalized version of what we're already doing all the time, almost by instinct. Popular culture has in fact been blurring its decades together since long before Stranger Things made the 1980s a reference point for the 2010s. And even that cassette message I recorded from my sister at age 19, the embarrassing one with all that dumb singing, alludes to an iconic late 1980s TV show that was set in the 1960s. And now an excerpt from my favorite TV show, The Wonder Years. I 
the end of that summer of 1969, a lot of things had changed. The Mets were headed for first place. Woodstock was a household word. The way the narrator talks about Woodstock on the Wonder Years, you'd think that the famous rock festival was a pure evocation of the summer of 1969, yet even Woodstock itself featured allusions to other eras, perhaps most notably an a cappella singing group called Sha Na Na, who were discovered and championed by none other than Jimi Hendrix and who sang a selection of 1950s-style rock and doo-wop songs from the Woodstock stage. Watch the Sha Na Na footage from the Woodstock documentary and it becomes clear that any cultural moment in history is invariably mixed up with previous eras of cultural history. One of my favorite throwback movies is Richard Linklater's 1993 Last Day of School retro teen film Dazed and Confused, which is set in 1976. Watching that movie the week it came out in 1993 threw me off a little, since seeing its depiction of 1976 made me long for a time when I was the same age as the characters in the movie, which in my case was the spring of 1988 when I was myself a junior in high school. This was an admittedly off-kilter feeling, since I never felt that happy or even in control of my own life my junior year of high school, whereas in 1993, when I drove to the cinema and watched Dazed and Confused for the first time, I was living in the city of Seattle at the height of grunge and working as a landscaper to earn money from my very first vagabonding trip. Indeed, I wouldn't have voluntarily traded a single day of my 1993 life from my life in 1988, even as the movie's depiction of 1976 made me literally long for who I was in 1988. That's the weird thing about nostalgia, I guess. It isn't rational, and just like Warren's 1990 song Cherry Pie reminds me of 1989 even more than the sound of my own voice, a movie like Dazed and Confused literally made me miss a time that was clearly less happy and zeitgeisty than the time I was living when I saw it. One of the most famous lines in the movie comes from Matthew McConaughey's Wooderson, a cool but faintly creepy older guy a few years out of high school. That's what I love about these high school girls, man. I get older, they stay the same age. <laughs> yes, they do. Cool. Yes, they do. <laughs> The irony for me here is that in the years since I saw Dazed and Confused for the first time in 1993, I've gotten older, yet Wooderson and everyone else in that movie has quite naturally stayed the same age. I've now come to the point where I'm more or less the same age as the parents of the young characters in the movie, even as I continue to relate most to the teenagers just like I did when I first saw it. Richard Linklater's best movies delve into the very concept of how the passage of time affects the human experience. And my favorite of his films is Before Sunrise and its sequels, which follow Ethan Hawke's young American character Jesse and Julia Delpy's young French character Celine after they meet on a train in Austria. Yeah, I got one of those Uriel passes, is what I did. That's great. So has this trip around Europe been good for you? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's been, um, it sucked, you know? What? <laughs> no, it, it hasn't, it's, it's had its, um... Well, I'll tell you, you know, sitting, you know, for weeks on end, looking out the window has actually been kind of great. The first time I saw this movie, I was 24 years old and I didn't even have a passport. 
Hence, whereas watching Dazed and Confused had created this peculiar emotional relationship with my past, watching Before Sunrise created a peculiar emotional relationship with my future. Watching the movie made me want to take a train across Europe so, among other things, I could, like Jesse, meet and fall in love with my own Celine. Eventually, I did get a passport, and I traveled to Europe and Asia and Africa and many places beyond, an ongoing adventure that in many ways is still happening. But back when I was still in the early years of embracing the far-flung international future I dreamed of when I first watched Before Sunrise, Linklater brought Jesse and Celine back for a sequel, Before Sunset, which depicts the two characters nine years later. Hence, just when I was used to having become older and more traveled than Jesse and Celine, they reappeared on screen roughly the same age as me once again, this time in Paris. Then, nine years after that, they came back for a third movie, Before Midnight, which is set in Greece. Whereas the first time I saw Jesse and Celine, they became a part of a conversation with my future, they now became part of a more complicated conversation, one that encompassed a genuine sense of loss for the person I was in my 20s, even as the person I became in my 30s and 40s was living a life that the younger version of myself would have envied and admired. I guess the relationship you have to your own life is constantly being altered by the act of living it. And even the best developments in your life don't stop you from longing for the longings you had at earlier times in life. It's now been 25 years since I saw Before Sunrise for the first time, and while I wouldn't want to be Jesse or Celine, I remain enraptured by the sense of connection that resonates so vividly in a scene midway through the movie when Celine and Jesse act out a pretend phone call about how they met. I, I met a guy on the train and I got off with him in Vienna. We're still there. Are you crazy? Probably. He's Austrian? He's from there? No, 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 no. He's passing through here, too. He's American. He's going back home tomorrow morning. Why'd you get off the train with him? Well, he convinced me. I mean, actually, I was... (laughs) I was ready to get off the train with him after talking to him a short while. He was so sweet, I couldn't help it. We were in the launch car, and he began to talk about him as a little boy seeing his great-grandmother's ghost. I think that's when I fell for him. Just the idea of this little boy with all those beautiful dreams. I never did meet my own Celine on a train in Europe or anywhere else overseas for that matter. And for all my past travels and my past travel relationships, it feels like a strange and delightful irony that it wasn't until a pandemic made it nearly impossible to travel outside my own country that I made such a singular connection to someone who grew up less than an hour away from me in my home state of Kansas. So what do you make of the way you and I met, Kiki? Well, I think on the surface of it, it doesn't, it might not have sounded really romantic, but it was... It was beautiful, even though it was during a pandemic in the middle of nowhere, Kansas, on a dating app. (laughs) So we didn't meet on a train in Europe. We (laughs) met on Bumble. (laughs) This is free advertising, Bumble. You're welcome. (laughs) Two travelers who met on a dating app in their own home state. I think if we had anything in common with Jesse and Celine from Before Sunrise, it's that it was super chatty. Mm-hmm. The early part of our relationship was super chatty because mm-hmm. we were socially distanced right. on our first two dates. We, right. we couldn't even shake hands. It's true. And we, before that, we had texted so much almost in this kind of rapid fire conversation. So it, it was very verbal, which is lovely. But a big difference, of course, between us and the characters is that, you know, we weren't just out of college. We were 
a little older. It, well, it's not classic. It's not a couple of young, you know, romance characters meeting in the way that we're used to seeing in movies and books and drama. But through the course of our early conversations, you introduced me or reminded me of a detail from Chekhov, which is sort of about slightly older people falling in love. You make me sound like a total nerd. <laughs> but yeah, we were talking about the things that we loved about our professions and invariably Chekhov was going to come up and and me talking about my love of acting. I mean, most actors worth their medal will bring up Anton at some point in time. But your quote wasn't from Uncle Vanya, which is one of your favorite plays. N no, it wasn't. But you had said that you knew of him more because of the short stories, which made me say, yes, I, I, I know of them as well. And the one that I knew the most or the best was The Lady with the Little Dog or The Lady with the Lapdog, and there were different titles for it. But yeah, I remembered the end was so moving to me because unlike a lot of his other play, his plays where the characters end up forlorn and lost and then the curtain falls, this was really a beautiful rumination on, on love. Could you read that passage that I really responded to, please? As it happens, I have it right in front of me. And only now, when he was no longer young, had he fallen properly, truly in love for the first time in his life. Anna Sergeyevna and he loved each other like people very close and akin, like husband and wife, like tender friends. It seemed to them that fate itself had meant them for one another. They forgave each other for what they were ashamed of in their past. They forgave everything in the present and felt that this love of theirs had changed them both. Yeah, I love that when you read it to me the first time, I loved it when you read it to me now. I'm curious, can you hear the music? No, I can't hear the music. It's a podcast you're going to put in later. <laughs> I'm going to edit in some music later because it's part of a transition, but I want you to come back and talk to me some more later. I will do that. The music you're hearing is actually Eric Satie's first No Cyan for Piano, and the fact that it makes me long for the fall of 2000 is pretty much proof that nostalgia doesn't necessarily revolve around, quote, happy personal associations. See, it was around that time that I had a brief love affair in Thailand with a woman from Belgium named Steffi, who in terms of my old travel girlfriends was pretty much an anti-Celine, and who ultimately served to make me feel bad about myself. I've written about Steffi before, and the gist of the story is that both of us probably fell more for Thailand when we traveled there together than we did for each other. When I later flew to Brussels from Southeast Asia in the dead of winter to see her for the Christmas holiday, I somehow failed to evoke for her the tropical exuberance of our shared adventure in Asia, and she almost immediately lost interest in the shivering, disoriented version of me that showed up in Belgium. My only positive memory of the entire experience was listening to her play Eric Satie compositions on the piano at her parents' house. And to this day, I can't hear the no cyans without longing for that time in my life, as miserable as it was. I guess sometimes nostalgia doesn't remind you of good memories so much as it reminds you of the fact that you were all those years ago very much alive, that you were trying to figure out ways to make the most of life not unlike you are right now, and sometimes that in itself is worth celebrating. Shortly before I got my ego crushed and my heart broken in Brussels that winter, I'd spent some time in the hospital back in Bangkok with a case of cerebral malaria, which if left untreated could have killed me. 
And all these years later, for reasons I can hardly explain, Eric Satie's No Science has now come to remind me of the hospital experience as well, which makes me wonder how I'll come to remember the flirtation with death I had when I crashed my motorcycle in Sri Lanka early last year. I mentioned before that I was riding through a swarm of butterflies before it happened, and I'd been slowing down to keep from killing them. And while that's a true enough detail, it didn't seem all that important when I first woke up in the hospital and tried to make sense of what had happened. It wasn't until weeks later when I was recounting the incident and people listening to the story wanted to know more about the butterflies that the butterflies became central to how I remembered the motorcycle wreck. My motorcycle accident was, in its own weird way, not unlike the horse riding accident the French philosopher Michel de Montaigne had in the year 1574 when a runaway horse slammed into his own horse on an afternoon excursion in the forest, knocking him unconscious. When he came to, he found himself vomiting up clots of blood and floating between consciousness and unconsciousness. At first, Montaigne had difficulty making sense of what happened, but he eventually used the incident as a way of making peace with the notion of death. Let us deprive death of its strangeness, he wrote. We do not know where death awaits us, so let us wait for it everywhere. Two years after this accident, Montaigne quit his job as a magistrate in Bordeaux, found solace in his library, and in writing about his life, pioneered the art of the personal essay. I don't know that my own motorcycle accident was quite so transformative in the artistic sense, and while it did make me ponder the prospect of my own death, in time I became more intrigued by the butterflies I was ostensibly trying to protect in the moments before the accident. Though I can't be certain, I'm pretty sure they were Ceylon lesser albatross butterflies, which in Sri Lanka are in danger of extinction due to climate change. I didn't know this at the time, nor did I know that cultures around the world see butterflies as a symbol for rebirth, a symbol for hope and endurance and change. In ancient Greek, the word for butterfly is psyche, which means soul. And in one dialect, the Russian word for butterfly derives from dusha, which also means soul. Irish folklore holds that it's bad luck to kill a white butterfly because white butterflies represent the souls of children, and some indigenous cultures in Colombia believe that a white moth is the spirit of an ancestor who's come back to visit the living. One Japanese superstition maintains that a butterfly in your room means that the person you love is about to arrive. Again, I didn't know any of this at the time, and slowing down my motorcycle in Sri Lanka to keep from killing the butterflies was probably a random instinct, but the more I've come to terms with my accident in the months since it happened, the more I've latched onto my seeming kindness and good intentions in that simple moment of beauty in the swarm of butterflies. In fact, the first gift I gave to Kiki after meeting her was a silver butterfly necklace, which was my way of saying I wanted to center beauty and kindness in my relationship with her. Not necessarily because kindness was an objective or empirical factor in the events leading up to my motorcycle crash, but because in retrospect, that's the version of the story I've chosen to hold on to. You might recall that earlier on I mentioned that the plan when I started this podcast was to build my episode about nostalgia around the old cassette tape recordings I made in my youth. As it happens, this episode has turned into something of a thought experiment and a memento mori and a love letter, but it never turned into the revelatory found footage audio remix I originally envisioned, in part because after hours of listening to my old cassette tapes, I often have trouble pinpointing the emotional energy of what I'm listening to. Take this cassette excerpt from 1996, for instance. That's it. I think we're going to need two men up here at the front, definitely, for the heavy part. One man in the middle. 
Ragnan, you're the man. All righty, boys. On the count of three. One, two, three. No, Jesus. No, that's just that's from a birthday camp out my friends and I took in Kansas in our mid-twenties, and that particular clip documents our unsuccessful attempt to collect firewood. The voice you hear is my old high school friend Tom, who recorded four hours of conversation from the camp out that weekend, most of which consists of us making dumb jokes and quoting lines from Pulp Fiction while we drink beer around a campfire. I'm not sure what inspired Tom to record all that banal chit-chat, and after listening to it, I doubt that anyone, myself included, will ever attempt to listen to it again in its entirety. As with most four-hour stretches of anyone's life, there's no particular reason to return to it for the simple reason that it's not all that remarkable. I actually have a recording of the very first time my voice was ever captured on tape back in 1978, and it illustrates the problem that recurs whenever I hear myself like this. Boss, you want to play with me? Yes. Okay, let's come out and play in the front yard. That's my sister Kristen and me back when I was seven and she was nine. And if our conversation sounds stilted, it was because our back and forth was being gently coaxed out by my father, who'd recently purchased a brand new Panasonic tape recorder. I can imagine exactly where I was in my childhood house when that moment played out, and I can marvel at that long-ago age when it was utterly novel for little kids to record the sound of their own voices. But in listening to that tape now, I can't really remember what it felt like to be that age, at least not compared to the way I feel when I hear something like this. What's the answer from Houston, which goes against Miami tonight on Monday Night Football? That veteran having his greatest year ever, Dan Pastorini, and he's got his receivers too, led by Kenny Burrow, one of the best there is at what he does. That's a 1978 Houston Oilers versus Miami Dolphins Monday night football game, as introduced by the legendary ABC sportscaster Howard Cosell. And for some reason, let's call it the cherry pie factor after the Warrant song I mentioned earlier, that bit of audio evokes a resonant feeling of nostalgia that is at once far more affecting than the sound of my own voice in 1978 and not quite in tune with my own organic memories of who I was back then. This cherry pie factor, that is my own inability to make sense of what will or won't make me feel nostalgia for an actual time of my own life, is not restricted to my own childhood. 1999, for instance, is a watershed year for me. It was the time I made a transition from working as an English teacher in Korea to working as a full-time travel writer, and my journeys took me down the Laotian Mekong, onto the set of a Leonardo DiCaprio movie in Thailand, across Russia on the Trans-Siberian train, and through Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland by hitchhiking, among other adventures. Every day that year was unique and played out on its own terms as can happen when you're living out of a backpack and I encountered a rich melange of sights and smells and tastes and sounds along the way, including a collection of Thai, Russian, Italian, Egyptian, and Indian pop cassettes that I still have to this day. Yet of all the sensory phenomena that put me right back into the emotional texture of 1999, nothing sparks my sense of nostalgia like this song, which, like Warren's Cherry Pie, I wasn't even into at the time. I know it sounds like all of this should be leading up to some kind of punchline, but I'm simply being honest here. 
For some reason, in spite of all my intellectualized and journal-certified memories of that time, a Blink-182 song that I never owned on cassette but must have been playing in the backpacker districts that year in places like Bangkok and Vilnius and Corfu immediately takes me back to the emotional texture of vagabonding across Asia into Europe in my late 20s. In this way, the random moments that trigger nostalgia in me, counterintuitive as they may be, have come to represent something like the tree rings of my own life, a way of marking my existential progress as, again and again and again, I find myself on nodding terms, and I'm paraphrasing Joan Didion this time, with all the people I used to be. Part of turning 50 years old is that, regardless of how old I feel, and at times I feel absurdly young and clueless, I've now accumulated 50 years of experiences that I'll never get back. This feels obvious, I know, but somehow the ever-widening circle of bygone memories keeps catching me by surprise. A few months after wrecking my motorbike in a cloud of Sri Lankan butterflies last year, I was reminded that the 19th century Scottish-American traveler and naturalist John Muir nearly lost his eyesight in a shop accident when he was 28 years old. Muir's temporary blindness made him reevaluate his priorities in life, and when his sight came back, he set out to travel and explore the natural world. This affliction, he wrote later, drove me to sweet fields. 20 months after my concussion, I still suffer from hyposmia, but I feel like I have no choice but to continue to seek out my own sweet fields, even if I can only partially smell the richness that grows there. Part of any encounter with nostalgia, I think, is that we're always living in moments that might well seed nostalgic memories of their own. Odds are we're all having experiences right now, amid this weird pandemic chapter in world history that we won't properly understand until we see them again in retrospect many years from now. Last summer in Paris, when I was worried that too many of my 2019 podcast episodes were focused on the 1990s at the expense of the present moment, I overlooked the fact that just as many episodes last year focused on walking and trekking, which is a type of travel I did and still do want to do more of in the future. This yearning to travel on foot more in the future is significant, and to understand just how symbolic and serendipitous it was, it's worth pointing out that a big part of my inspiration to seek out more trekking dates back to four winters ago, when I spent a couple weeks in a cabin in Argentinian Patagonia, and I was inspired to come back to that part of the world one day with more time on my hands and hike through that landscape in earnest. As it happens, and this is also something that would later come to feel serendipitous, I distinctly remember feeling something akin to nostalgia when I streamed an indie comedy drama movie called Liberal Arts on Netflix in that same Patagonian cabin in 2016. Here's a clip from the trailer to that movie, which starred Josh Radner as a not-quite-grown-up young college professor. You're, like, back in college. You're overdressed. I don't know if you know this, but uh, I'm a few years older than you. Did you think this was like a romantic thing? According to my journal that winter, this movie was full of interesting, if not particularly original ideas, and it, quote, creates a faintly nostalgic sense of longing for a college experience I never quite had, end quote. Coincidentally enough, and this is one of the details that would in time make this moment significant several years later, liberal arts also included this memorable breakup scene. Yours or mine? Mine. You can have it if you want, though. Is that a new shirt? 
Uh, yeah, it is. Do you like it? Don't ask me that. Why? Because it's not my job to make you feel good about yourself anymore. The actress who plays the woman breaking up with Josh Radner in that scene just so happens to be Kristen Bush, a.k.a. Kiki, who I would meet almost exactly four years later in our home state of Kansas at the outset of the pandemic. During a time in May when we would have otherwise both been off traveling, still utter strangers to each other in different parts of Europe. Making note of this coincidence is, of course, mainly a matter of stitching together a kind of enchanted narrative in retrospect, kind of like I choose to do when I focus on the butterfly detail whenever I recall my motorcycle wreck in Sri Lanka. But I think how we choose to organize our memories is in part how we choose to imbue meaning into the present moment, and Kiki herself has a story that more or less parallels my own accidental encounter with the Netflix incarnation of her in the winter of 2016. So what were you doing in Germany while I was watching you break up with Josh Radner on Netflix in 2016? Well, I was having a fight with my current ex because he wanted to become some sort of a digital nomad. Unbeknownst to me, that was not part of the contract that I'd entered, but he was very interested in this notion of not being in one place and Airbnb hopping for uh, a long time, and that wasn't something I was interested in. And he was reading a lot about that whole notion, and he bought a book um, to bolster this sort of desire of his, and I didn't want to read it. And what was the name of that book? Well, the name of that book, let me see, is Vagabonding by a Certain Rolf Potts. <laughs> Which is kind of awesome. <laughs> Which is kind of crazy. The source of a fight in your previous relationship. Was you. <laughs> was me. <laughs> Well, one interesting thing that was happening while this was going on in Argentina and in Germany and afterwards was that I was dreaming of trekking more. I was dreaming of hiking more. And in fact, at this time when I was feeling bad for doing nostalgia episodes about things that happened in the 90s, I was also doing episodes about trekking. And while I was doing those episodes, what were you doing? I was indeed doing a lot of long distance hiking in Europe throughout the Alps. Um, Notably, uh, hiked from around Venice to Munich. So I went through Italy and then Austria and uh, into Germany. I love it that you had actually embraced this thing that I was dreaming of doing. Um, and it's something that actually I haven't done a lot of since I was about 18 or 19, which is funny enough, when I made that dorky tape for my sister, I actually slept in the forest and hiked it all day, every day that summer. And well, I think we need to do that together. Please, let's get back to doing that. And when we do that, when this pandemic ends enough that we can hike for days and weeks at a time, what are we going to look back on? What are we going to be nostalgic about for this moment in pandemic America? It's funny that you ask that because I think, I think even just today in looking at our Kansas landscape, I think those will be the things that I'm stuck with, whether it's the light on the water, the Milo being, is it threshed? I'm such a bad Kansan. It's just like little moments like that. I'm now going to connect with, with you. And I think that that's so appropriate for, for two Kansans. Probably whatever song is the equivalent of cherry pie right now is what I'm going to remember. You have this beautiful <laughs> nostalgic memory of the and you'll, wheat. You'll and be singing the equivalent of warrant. We'll see what comes of that later. I think one, one of the cliches of nostalgia is that you long to go back in time so you can relive it maybe in a better mm -hmm. way. When in fact, really all we have 
is right now we sort of if nostalgia reminds us of anything is that we should really be embracing right now well i think one of the beautiful things about the fact that we met in this time period in our lives it just goes to show you that really lovely things can happen at unexpected periods of time i didn't think my 40s was going to be such a highlight you know and i think that i think that that just goes to show that we can be surprised about what's next absolutely and I think there will be a time when we look back on this moment where I'm basically 50 and think, we were so young. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> While we're young, at least in relation to how we remember this, let's make the most of it. I'm all for that. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts, which is produced by myself and Justin Glow. Show notes can be found at rolfpotts.com deviate. Right now you're listening to a cassette recording I made from my sister in the fall of 1989, which I still find faintly embarrassing. Thanks for listening, everyone. This has been a Rolf Potts production. Any unauthorized reproduction of this is a federal offense. All credit, work, and originality in this piece are the ownership of Rolf Potts. Copyright 1989.